You're listening to The Razor's Edge. The Razor's Edge is an investing podcast. Your hosts are Akram's Razor, an investor and trader with decades of experience in markets, and me, Daniel Schwarzman, who has been focused on the market as a career for the past decade. We take investing ideas or themes we're interested in and break them down, or we speak with expert guests to get a wider understanding of a given topic. To get episodes of The Razor's Edge, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you have a chance, or share this show with a friend. You can also check out our work on Seeking Alpha under our respective names, or reach us on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman or at Akram's Razor. Our standard disclaimer and disclosure. The Razor's Edge is a Shortman Studios production. The views discussed belong to either Akram or me, respectively, or to our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. We'll disclose any positions in any stocks discussed at the end of the podcast or during our introduction to the given episode. This week's The Razor's Edge takes a March Madness theme as we serve up a cornucopia of ideas and discussions. Well, that might be overstating it, but we went for a three ball here. We start off with PagerDuty because the SaaS company that we've been talking about for a year now really came into its own with their Q4 report. A solid set of numbers and a resounding swagger on the call. We break it down. Then we each pitch a new idea. I talk about my position in Just Eat Takeaway and Grubhub and we boil down the competitive elements and the timing and get to the core of the thesis, which is probably just an operator play. Then, Akram talks up the GoPro thesis as the action camera maker's budding subscription business times well with a reopening tailwind. We each try to quiz the other on our respective theses, and I hope beyond the ideas itself it gives you something to chew on as far as idea generation and stress testing. For disclosures today, I'm Long F5 Networks, Booking, Dropbox, PagerDuty, and of course, Grubhub and Just Eat Takeaway, the latter in the Amsterdam shares. Akram is Long Workday, Booking, PagerDuty, and GoPro. Okay, shot clock's on. Let's get going. All right, Akram, we're doing a bit of a March Madness themed episode, I guess you could call it. We're going to potentially touch on each two new pitches that each of us have, one each. but. Before we do, PagerDuty reported, as we record this, they reported two days ago. They recorded, reported on Wednesday, the 17th. What do you take from PagerDuty's earnings report? Uh, best ever. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's good. Yeah, I mean... Uh, Reaction look, was a I, bit mixed I, at I, first. I, I, I didn't listen to the call. I read the transcript. We had Mark and Justin were on the call. And I think Jens maybe was even on the call as well. I don't know who else in the room. But after Mark and Justin, like, I was like, I had to pull up the call and listen. Because I read the transcript. The transcript was great. But as I'm not vested as they are, <laughs> and I had other things that I was dealing with in, in the markets, you know, go pro or go home. I didn't have time to listen to it live. And yeah, I got on it. And wow. I mean, what a what, <laughs> What a great earnings call. I think the I think the interesting thing about that is they got criticism, you know, and we discussed this several times about 
narrative and being a little bit more positive and like like the tempered kind of behavior on the last two calls and the, not even the last one let's call it the, the two before that may and september end of, end of august beginning of september one bloody september there was good progress being made and like they didn't seem to really really want to hammer home their confidence on like you know digital transformation and momentum in the business like it was kind of it was like yes these things are going really well then you know there's you know some headwinds here which is what we call honesty and integrity <laughs> you know mm. like you know transparency from a management team and and not full of shit promotional and the upside on the, on a management team that actually has their feet on the ground you know a good head on their shoulders and getting the message across is when they do shift and they did kind of i mean like let's be honest i thought the i thought the conference call in september was was really good for for me like i can i'm looking deeper on the undertones but and then the last one was was a major step up but like this one was like peacocking you know like everything you could have wanted. i mean like they're just they're crushing it in financials the use case is expanding the metrics all were there to like kind of back it up but there was a couple of people on Twitter who were like, I don't get why the stock is doing this and why anyone cares today. And like, it's not like they beat big. And you have to appreciate this, that going into the print, because I had looked into, even though I wasn't in it going into it, the gang has, you know, sizable exposure. So I did, I did do the rounds on what the buy side is thinking, talked to a couple of people. And there was kind of like a bit of like, how are they going to hit these numbers? You know, they're, they're going to grow 28% this year. And like, I think they're going to, like, there was some skepticism around, you know, the, it's still lingering that like they could just grow the same rate or even slightly better next year. Right. So with the consensus kind of at like 266 or whatever it was, I was, I mean, I was looking at it too, because I had thought like the guide would be, I, I thought the street would be like a little bit lower. So I was like, yeah, I guess I could see like from a headline standpoint, bit of a bit of a skepticism here and then for like a few people like they just don't want to be in it for like a you know the guide to 20 and we start out with like they're being ultra conservative for the year but like the guidance is like 10 million or so below the street which would by the way also imply some sort of poor communication with the street which i didn't think was possible but you know the, the fact that that still exists says something about it, and we talk about these names with with legacy elements so when the print came out i was just like okay like you know i messaged you know, everybody was like, you're all good, <laughs> right? I was like, that's great. That's great guidance. And like the buildings look fantastic. And, you know, like knowing SASs, like if they grew 29 this quarter, 28 on the year, the midpoint is about 20, 25, 26 for next year. So if you go back into how you guide in SAS, they can come close to 30. And then on the call, you know, they started talking about 30 and doing more than 30, which I think a lot of people liked as well. But those things aside, the actual underlying stuff you look for, like use case expansion, the user growth, the net UARR on digital operations, i.e. bundle, the logos that they're calling out, who expanded and why and what they expanded into, the stuff on Morgan Stanley, the stuff on the, the grocery chain, using it for the checkout clerks. Like, you know, you could start to dare to say to use the word that people, you know, at least going back to when I was shorting it, we like almost were like, this is comical to now, you know, there's a legit argument that you can say platform because once you start looking at it from that standpoint 40% of the of the fortune 500 right 60% of the fortune 100 they're just like basically proving the bull case and 
even without a position, I like, you know, I had told them, I was like, look, guys, I mean, if this thing opens down tomorrow because of what's going on in SaaS, like, let's, let's agree the one day moves in SaaS on earnings, even before COVID could be entirely unreliable. Like I bought this stock post earnings on a drop twice, right? And I bought like short duration options based on that. And I've short, I bought puts on SaaS stocks that gapped up immediately after earnings. Like that's, that's like contrary to popular belief, that's often a very winning strategy. So you can't sit here and say that that move in a market where this, these things are moving 10% a day when it was down like five or 6% after hours and, you know, eight, 9% yesterday t- tells you anything like, you know, that the volatility is just there. So, and by the way, the options are still expensive. Like even with the 10% drop yesterday, you're like, you know, like this thing is kind of implied going right back to 44 in April. I mean, there's no, there's no deals for being an aggressive risk taker buying in the morning, but today you're seeing, uh, you know, I was having fun with it on Twitter, but you're seeing that kind of like, it's the number one performing stock in, in the whole comp on my list. And you're seeing a lot of people kind of catch the drift on like that call was great. I mean, the sell side, you could tell loved it. And what was not to love because they're telling you they've got, you know, Carefor is using run deck. They've done an acquisition. They already have some customers adopting it. They're, they're at 700,000 users. So 40% growth on the user side. I mean, wh- like what more do you want other than like, hey, you know, as your digital infrastructure gets more complex, you know, PagerDuty is, you know, a first derivative beneficiary. And I mean, I think that just kind of proved out. And like the fact that they're, they crack 20% on the bundle, essentially, you know, the upsell on the digital ops and that 70% of the net UAR is coming from there. I can see why she's willing to say we can, we can grow over 30. And to get to that point, the fact that that even came up in a conversation, I will point out, if you look at Everbridge's business, and we've discussed this, it is literally managed between inorganic and organic growth to keep you know, the annual revenue growth rate at 30% or higher. And why is that? That's the case because if you stay over that 30, there's a, there's a class of investors on the momentum and quant side who pay a premium for you in software. The minute you cross 30 into 20, you know, there's a step function move in the multiple. It starts to contract. But if you look at where PagerDuty was trading yesterday, we were trading on their guide, and I'm not building in the typical, you know, 5% to 7% upside for the year that like should be embedded in a guidance. On their guide, they were trading at nine times forward EB to sales. Right. So you could do the math that, you know, roughly at 27% with the just assumption that you, you, you have upside to let's call it almost 30. And there's nothing in the neighborhood of that. There's Salesforce, like, you know, back at its mean. There's Workday a little higher, but like that's, you know, growing at like 20, but like nothing in the range of it there. And let alone off the base that they're at on their size. And I mean, going back to our, our initial thesis was that like, this is not going to be a crowd strike or a snowflake type thing. But if this thing dominates large enterprise and, you know, steady Eddie metronome style gives you a 25% CAGR and you're buying it at single digit EV to sales, which is where we were at a year ago, you're going to win. You should expect to win. And there was someone else who commented and I was like, if you can't buy this, what are you going to buy in software? Because the great stuff that like, and, and we all know what like, you know, the, the darlings are in terms of momentum that put the, uh, the big prints. They're at 30 and 40 and 50 times still. So even, even with the sell-offs, you, you still have some really expensive names in that space. 
and it, it, like any one of them step functions just a little bit down, the stock is going to get cut in half. So, I mean, I think that like as far as Justin and the, and, and the more conservative guys go who just kind of like want to buy and hold and something where they're supremely confident. I mean, I think like this quarter and then that conference call in particular was like just like, you know, peacocking is the best word to describe it. It's like the the all clear was sounded. Well, and it's like so, you said, they they kind of earned the credit because they didn't they didn't sugarcoat during the year. They ended up beating their guidance ultimately, barely, but like they I think they guided up until 212 all along and they got to 214. So they managed to deliver despite not the management team knows what they're doing. And that's right. that was the point I did on Twitter, which is and I don't say knows what they're doing. It's I would say they're almost exceptionally demonstrating that they know what they're doing now. So I would say if you look at what I said on Twitter, it's like you should you should take a management team that has tempered you in the past extremely seriously when like they're that when they're that confident about what's going on and they're willing to go into that direction of not committing to but talking about things like we will grow over thirty and NDR and large enterprises over one twenty five and like their business is humming and they know it like they expressed that they had the confidence really and it should it's human nature and behavior right like. It makes perfect sense and it's a good steward of a business, let alone for shareholders, if that if they were cautious with certain, let's call them headwind signals. And this was something that drove a lot of us crazy, right? Early on, it was like, yeah, page of duty is not benefiting from this. Is like, and it was like, look, they're benefiting. It's common sense. Study the business, talk to people on the use cases. You want to see it immediately in the numbers. There's other little moving parts here that, you know, can be problematic. But if it's going to do what we expect it to do, it's going to be a company that's going to be able to deliver a longer tail of growth and be very sticky versus, let's say, hey, Zoom style type thing, even though Zoom, fantastic business, but like, you know, herd mentality in and then potentially herd mentality out, right? I mean, you're looking at flattish billings, you know, by the end of the year there, that's not what you're looking at here. Right. Do you, the question I have is, the most impressive part of the bear case to me is the idea that this is a point product that it ultimately there's only so far it can grow and that it should belong to a broader suite, which is also part of the bull case, right? Because obviously Justin always talks about service now, but do you, this improved retention and this expansion, are you seeing this as just Proof that their use case is bigger than people I mean, thought. Dude, we, we went from Dev, DevOps support tickets, you know, for let's call it uh, digital infrastructure outages, to it's being used for customer support by grocery store clerk checkouts. It's being used by electric utilities to monitor infrastructure. I mean, it's being used for security. It's being used for a lot of things. So I don't really know what else to say about that. Like, I think that's it speaks for itself. Is that a threat to a Zendesk, for example, like the customer support? I mean, there's obviously some help desk element there going on in the customer support. I don't know. I would have to go back and, and think about what's going on in the core Zendesk business, which I've spent little time on. But looking at this from someone who looked at this with an extremely skeptical eye when it, when it came public, you know, Twilio Hackathon project. I mean, it couldn't have shifted more in my head from the type of business it looks like today. Is it a business that I could I could still see being a thirty to forty dollars stock? Yes, but that would be, require a very serious re-rate and everything else in software. This is an outperformer in software you know, for the next year. Like we're going to look back twelve months from now, or let's call it eight months from now, nine months from now, and you'll be like, 
you know, page of duty here was a great buy. Just like I think that, you know, like I feel the same case around Workday as far as anything in software. Did you end up picking up anything yesterday? A little, yes. Okay. I, I had an I order. I, w- I mean, if you had told me that like, you know, we'd get the, the 24 hours, I, w- I would have paid up on the premium on those options expiring today. <laughs> but I've, I'm doing enough of that. And, I, you know, I, with my vacation starting next week, uh, thank you. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. I had an order at 36 and it didn't fill. So now I'm just- You can't win them all. Selling, you know, north of 50 is, it was good enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a good lesson for all investors. You can't win them all. Don't don't experience FOMO on every stock because so many are moving in one direction or the other. And that's why I tried to put like, you know, with what my comments on Twitter, I really wanted to steer it towards just focus on on what is going on in the business, because there are still people out there who are in the buy and hold variety and they want to have confidence that they own something. And with this company, with what they with that conference call and where it was trading yesterday. If you're not gonna, if you're not comfortable owning that, you're not gonna be comfortable owning just about anything in SaaS right now. Yeah. Because, because the, the only reason you shouldn't be comfortable owning that at that multiple with everything, and I looked at everything else in SaaS. Okay, there was nothing else in SaaS when I went through the comp stack right then and there that jumped out as nicely as PageDuty. It became that much of an anomaly that quickly. Now here's the thing: things could change, and in six months maybe they miss a quarter, or maybe like something goes wrong, and maybe they got it wrong. But based on their track record. You should have the confidence that this is a management team that has not been selling you that we're willing to jump the gun, right? So like that's that's literally been the criticism of them from, from several people. So that earns them credibility and the market's going to give them that benefit of the doubt from here relative to everybody else. Whether or not you want to own SaaS at all is a whole different story. And, that, and you know, that's depends on the type of investor you are. Yeah, that was you had an interesting space about that that I didn't jump into, but about the reading the cues from management and how to, to me, you know, and I think not to keep evoking a name like this, but I feel like Ben Graham was skeptical of talking to management. I think there's something about you get motivated reasoning and you think you can read management, but you're kind of you're kind of letting yourself believe whatever you want to believe. But I think what you're saying is there is when you have more of a context and when you have a track record of, you know, in a pretty tough year for them to be honest and open, but still deliver results and then to start feeling confident, that's a different sort of signal than just getting on the phone and them saying nice things to you. Exactly. Look, I mean, and that goes like, you know, here we are, we've had guests on people, CEOs running companies. And I mean, we obviously could ask to maybe have them on and discuss the business and we would love to do that. but it's very hard to do that when you're also really actively involved in the stock. Like I would have been actually happy. I'm, I'm happy to talk to a management team if I own no shares. And I'm not long and I'm not sitting there thinking it through that prism of like, you know, do I need to parse anything here and like, just talk about the business. And then afterwards you want to sit there and think about, Hmm, this is maybe interesting or maybe it's not interesting or, or whatever. But yeah, I think it makes it, I think it makes it harder when, like to, to to keep just a teeny bit of separation, which is what the sell side is out there to do for you, I think is is the way to go. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's interesting given your background with shorting, especially. All right, anything else on Spager nope, Duty or nope, should let's we? Let's go. Uh, 
Shot clock right. violation. I think we went past that one. <laughs> yeah, we said two minutes when we were preparing. So all right, next one. So your turn. I've got a pitch for you on Grubhub. Yeah, uh, I read it. Just eat takeaway. So just for listeners to summarize my pitch, I'm long both Just Eat Takeaway in Europe, I run a small account there, and Grubhub in the States, which is getting taken over by Just Eat Takeaway. It'll become an ADR for the company. So it's basically trading as a proxy. It's a stock deal. So, and I guess there's, it's it's not, there are a lot of smart people out there on Twitter who are talking about this. So I don't want to like, claim that I'm the leader here or anything, but I just, I was trying to think through this business. We're taught, we talk a ton about the COVID slingshot or whatever you want to call it. The idea of the COVID pull forward for tech stocks, but then we've got the boomerang of the reopening stocks coming out and reopening trade has kind of gone really widely. And it's a really interesting moment for that because I've, I think I said to you that I feel like a few months from now, we're going to be talking about those stocks, the way we're talking about the Zooms of the world now. But Grubhub is this weird stock where, or just, just eat, I'll, let me just use Jesse Takeaway, which I own the Amsterdam shares there. They're, they didn't really benefit last year, right? They didn't like, they kind of were flat year over year. I think they're, I haven't looked at the quote today, but they're more or less where they were at the beginning of 2020. But we obviously ordered a ton more food. And so their category seemed to grow a lot. You can argue that they're in the same position as Slack versus Teams, where they were a leader, but the environment actually helped their competitors catch up. Deliveroo and Uber Eats. The big battleground right now is the UK. That's where everybody's talking about. DoorDash in the States, obviously. Grubhub seems to me a little bit less efficiently managed than Just Eat Takeaway is. And so the stock didn't go anywhere. And so there could be some logical reasons why, but they bought Grubhub. They also may have overpaid for that, but they, they have a model that seems to me distinct from their peers in the marketplace model, which everybody knows about. So I'm not trying to express some new insight here, but it just seems to me like we have, we have the potential of COVID fatigue weighing on the stock because people are looking at and saying, all right, we're all going to go out to restaurants. I told you that I went out for lunch today and people are all going to go out. And so you you think first level, well, I'm not going to order as much food. And so that may be weighing on it. You also have the delivery. I don't know if they went public this week, but they're coming, they're going public any day. So there's a lot of money in here. There's a lot of big names in here. And so there's a lot of threats, but it seems to me like just each business model seems pretty solid in the fact that they have the core marketplace, which means that they don't actually deliver the food for a lot of businesses. So they take a lower cut, but they also don't have to. Ex- what, what's the cut? Like 12, 12%, 13%? I think that's right. I think it's, I think it's in the low teens area. And then if you do the delivery, it ends up being more or less double that they're they've built out a delivery unit to kind of be defensive. So it's really like an interesting space because they're really, there's a lot of competition. They're building scuba is what they call it here. I think in Canada, they have skipped the dishes and they're building out their delivery unit as sort of a defensive maneuver to maintain market share. 
And essentially, it's like a battle to see if they can wear out these other companies that don't have as good unit economics because they're on this logistics model where they're delivering everything. And so I guess that's the basics is that they have sort of a piggy bank to rob in their marketplace business so as to maintain their moat. They've got some labor dynamics because they actually hire their drivers rather than the freelance Ubery sort of model. And in Europe, not in the States, but in Europe, they're like starting to enforce the fact that, no, those are employees. They're not freelancers and you're going to have to pay taxes. So Just Eat seems better positioned there. I don't know. It's it's like, a and I know you followed Grubhub, you've said from basically the beginning. So I'll be curious for your thoughts, but it just seems to me like they've got an interesting competitive position. They got very little benefit from massive growth and penetration as a segment. And it seems to me like they have a pretty solid chance of being one of the two or three survivors in any given market. I mean, they have a market lead by their reports in a lot of their European markets. The US, they're now trailing. I Once they take over Grubhub, they'll be trailing quite heavily. But it just seems like they've got a pretty solid position competitively and in their business model where in food delivery doesn't seem to me like it's going to go away. Whether Whatever the fluctuations this year, they think they're going to grow. Deliveroo thinks they're going to grow. DoorDash thinks things are going to grow. But even if it does... Like, well, I don't understand why people always say, use, not to, to cut you off, the uh, the go away expression. The internet's not going to go away. Right. Cloud's not going to go away. This is... Not, I mean, of course, it's not going to go away, but like that's not like it doesn't take comfort in an investment, right? That like it's right. a trend, right? And trends that like you wouldn't want to own a business who's disappearing. What, what we like when we get to the to, if we have find the time with, with with respect to GoPro, maybe that's one where you can sit there and say, is it a business that's going to go away? Like that's you know an an argument to potentially be had by some people, and even there, I would say no. But I think when you think about just E and Grubhub. I think it's what does the business look like? I mean, they started out, I mean, I like, you know, Grubhub going back to when it was when before they merged with Seamless and using Seamless, like the aggregation idea behind menus and, you know, facilitating ordering online was pretty straightforward, simple and great. But today, when I've been using Grubhub a decent amount recently because of a few restaurants on it that aren't on Uber Eats and I had been predominantly using Uber Eats. And they're just so expensive. I mean, they're all so expensive, but like, it's pretty expensive. You think Grubhub is more expensive than the other? Like, you notice? I that mean, from what I've ordered recently, Grubhub felt like it was more expensive. But like that, I like the, in general, food ordering, the value proposition around it, like, and you know, we've had on here, Jamie, like, you know, has criticized it as well. But I mean, there's times when, like, you know, I ordered like a couple of lobster rolls the other day, and everything outside of like the food was like 40 bucks and the delivery was 90, (laughs) you know, like you just, you start looking at what's added in and what's added in. And like, you know, when you add, by the time you're done with the tip and the tip is adjusted at 25% or 23% then the tax and the driver fee and the whatever. And like, you know, and then like what costs $48, $16 per roll turns into a $90 bill. And you're you're in a relatively suburban area, right? You're not like in, yeah. But I'm yeah. saying that place, the the place that I ordered from, is so close to me that like I, 
have almost no excuse because it's like, you know, it's like buy one, get one free every time you order. Right. Like it's like you're going to do the order the next day. But and and so many things outside of stuff like Domino's who delivers their shit. And we've talked about them in the past. It's it, it makes sense. But things got expensive under COVID. I mean, there was a day where it was like lightly snowing and ordering Sonic. And I was just like, holy cow. It was like the delivery plus, the, you know, the, we're experiencing surge or whatever. It was it's like three X the price. Well, people don't understand. I I don't know. Maybe Maryland is on the border. I feel like people don't understand how to deal with snow south of I-80 or thereabouts. Like Maryland has no issue with that. But I'm just saying the dynamics around. I mean, look, that makes sense. Like it's, you know, COVID and and weather. But when I think New York or L.A. typically ordering food and, and London and Dubai, I've just noticed it's gotten notably more expensive in the last year. And the value proposition. And we had been going down this path right before COVID. We were talking about it. You know, the value proposition to the consumer, at least in the really large cities, I think, is shifting, right? And that goes back to what the marketplace or the like the software companies that have come like Toast and Olu and these things that like, mm-hmm. you know, are providing you potentially ability to take some stuff in and, and, and do your own delivery and manage, you know, the idea of a marketplace. Because I would ask that question. I would say like, what's a marketplace in food delivery? Because, you know, Just Eats does get a lot of that love and it's been built with profitable unit economics and kind of the, the moat that exists around that and doing the delivery, letting you do the delivery yourself and just bringing you customer, right? And essentially taking a success fee. But with the money that was thrown in, in the, like, let's call it this era of the SoftBank era in this space with the Ubers and, and the DoorDashes and everybody else who came into the space. Yeah. I mean, like they're doing logistics, but like, aren't they also in, at, the sa- at the same time that they're, they're doing logistics, reverse, reverse engineering themselves into a marketplace? That's like that's it, the threat, right? Is that they get right? to the point where they have it. And I will say this is not Peter Lynch in the sense of like we in Spain, we in our town, we use I, I've started using Just Eat more again because of my interest in the stock, but I would say we use Glovo, which is a delivery service most. And then Uber Eats, we were increasingly using towards the sort of back half of last year because they had a few restaurants that didn't show up on the others. And the- so it's kind of it's like is it a is it a Netflix Disney problem yet where like you can't get it all in one place? Yeah, I don't, and that, I mean, I think it's interesting. There's a few, there's the our laziness, right? Because I, I ordered, we just ordered a pizza from a place across the street from us two times in the last week, let's say. It was a little more than a week, but, and they say on their boxes, like order from us and you'll get a 10% discount. And we just, you know, we threw out the box and we forgot and we just went to just eat again. And so there's a little bit of that, like inertia of, and that's what the restaurants are frustrated about. They want to own their relationships. Like I just started using a Starbucks app and like, it's ridiculous when I think about it, I was costing myself like two cups of coffee a month and in, in rewards. Starbucks, did you catch Starbucks as a, evidently a pager duty customer? I feel like they made like a coy mention to Starbucks. I mean, you know, pager duty is the bluest of the blue chips at this point. I mean- <laughs> Forty percent of the S and P five of the Fortune five hundred, sixty percent of the Fortune one hundred. Who's Starbucks? <laughs> well, I just love when when a you know I feel like it was 
Jennifer to I mean, you can't argue good. with that. I mean, the logo wise, they have everybody. I mean, they've got thousands of, you know, the, the Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, like who's not using them? Like a large coffee retailer you might know of where mobile pickup and pay has become really important. It's just like, I, it was I obviously, it, she was obviously referring to Kosi. <laughs> right. Yeah. Costa <laughs> coffee. Costa coffee is huge in the States. That's that was Anyway. Yeah, I, I, it's, it, you know, an Olo just went public and that's an interesting story. It's, I feel like it's a pretty high multiple stock, but there, and their strategy is all big chains and whatever. I think there's, there's something interesting. And I know you mentioned Jamie, I know Jim Chanos, I feel like has been, has tweeted at times skeptically or commented on CNBC skeptically about Grubhub. So I'm aware that it's like, there's no reason to think that Just Eat doesn't suffer the same problems because Grubhub was also the marketplace model originally. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that's that's that question is fundamental is do they actually win the they seem to have better economics. Can DoorDash and Uber Eats get to the point where they actually they're over profitability and they can really invest? Does it matter because maybe they get free money all along? I feel like that's a really interesting question. But then there's also that sort of the fundamental value to the restaurants is something that I'm curious about because it's an industry that just got the crap kicked out of it last year, obviously, as we're stuck at home. We may have ordered some, but that they're that's William the- Sonoma, bro. 22% yesterday. Talk about really the slap in the face. Well, and and like they, you know, we know what it's like in a restaurant or a bar. You make your money on beverages a lot. They they charge a surcharge for beverages, and that's out the window. And now you have to pay 15% or 30% to somebody who's taking the order. You don't. I, there's a lot of pressure on, I can't remember, I did some reading and somebody made the argument that what should really happen is that the marketplaces should share customer information with the restaurants that they work with. But yeah, I feel like there's a, I guess that's part of my argument. And maybe this is like too soft. Part of my argument is that there, it's possible that in the next six to nine months, this doesn't work and that's fine. I'm If I'm optimizing for a year or two, that's okay because we'll see how things shake out. But it seems like there's probably got to be some more regulation that is coming in as far as how do you manage the relationship between local restaurants that everybody cares about and loves, but that is getting hit by margin pressure from these aggregators and the aggregators. How do you balance that? And if you start to do that, and the same goes with the hiring in Europe of the drivers, it seems like Just Eat is just positioned for that next step or two of the game where at some point this rationalizes. And if you're going to have to rationalize the company that has some profits to work with, would seem to me a better position to last than the other companies. And that's why I said the you were right to comment about the going away. My point is just that the industry being what it is, when it rationalizes, it seems to me like a marketplace model and a leader is more comfortable than a logistics-based model. And the logistics make, they might get to a marketplace eventually, but they've got like a few big steps to get there. And this- I mean, let's talk about what everybody likes about it, really. I mean, it's, it's, the founder, everybody loves him. 
Okay. Right. And that I, I did. Yeah. He's super it's active. Founder led. Okay. It's a yeah. founder led self-made billionaire success story. He's crushed it. There isn't anybody in the, uh, in the ecosystem. And I know, I, I actually know the ecosystem around some of this, like, you know, the cloud kitchen, food investing, uh, delivery pretty well on the, on the venture capital side. So he's kind of like, you know, like a Kaiser Sose type in that space, right? Yeah. He's just like the, you know, not as front page and center founder, but just like a master. So he's very well respected. Part of the driver behind that is that he's outspoken on, on some things w- with respect to the competition. Mm-hmm. People like the marketplace model, right? You've laid out like, and I can get the appeal that, and I've seen other guys pitch this in the past where you see it as a structurally better business, okay? Because of the complications that exist around the logistics. All right. and But like it works as a structurally better business because if delivery becomes big for me, I want to insource that cost. I'm not going to pay a flat rate contract. It's, it's going to become part of my core overhead. So I'm going to be happy with the marketplace bringing me the customer and I'll pay them essentially the success fee, the commission. But I don't want to pay the tax on logistics and give up the margin. That is what happens when, you, and if you look at probably what's driving most of, of their success in their business, it's got to be the type of restaurants that are doing enough delivery to justify keeping the delivery in sourced. It becomes a core part of their business. I think it's the, I think the money that was rained on the delivery space it started taking delivery to the places that were, were not delivery driven, which was not the focus of their marketplace business. So like when Uber st- strikes a deal with McDonald's, where like you're willing to pick it up, right? And turns that into delivery business, or you start going after upscale restaurants or whoever as just an alternative channel aggressively. That's when you get into the dynamic of like, you, you started to change the user behavior and then things got started to get more expensive. And that's where the, like, if you look at a Grubhub, the competition came in and it started to make that model a lot worse. And that's where Grubhub, you know, had the wild ride that stock had before this acquisition was, oh, there's a lot of pressure exerted on them in the US market. And I mean, by the way, I like you're seeing all these guys experiment with the subscription offering, right? Right, which is really interesting. To essentially deal with part of the problem that's occurring on the logistics side. And like, you know, if you're going to be that type of consumer who's going to spend that, and I was doing the math, like you should probably take the subscription, but you try, you, you like, you constantly like feel like if you take the subscription, you're locking yourself into like the limited choices that they have. And just the, the, the habit of like some weeks I might want to order twice and some weeks I might want to order zero times. And it feels like that's like not moral hazard, but it's requiring yeah. you to order more often. You order enough, you realize it. And, and like going back to who, what's his name we had on Kareem from, from Ramp, when you think about like the savings on subscription services and showing that, like, I think people will start to notice that more and more people will take it because you'll realize you are spending, like, like you said earlier, like it's not going away, right? Uh, you'll realize that you're going to do enough ordering that the convenience of having it, like the option there, uh, but there is a challenge when you have like like you, you still do need some players to disappear. So going back to what you like, the marketplace, the founder, and I guess it, I mean COVID as a tailwind. I, I've seen pitches around it. I don't know if you got into it. Uh, the Brazilian. Yeah, that that was it. They they've got a stake in iFood, which 
I didn't quite, somebody else on Seeking Alpha wrote about. Yeah, spinning was, it off and selling it as, as a potential catalyst. They've doing a got buyback. an offers for 2.3 billion euros. I couldn't understand if that was valuation for the whole firm or for their 33% stake. But yeah, anyway, it's, they've got a stake. I would assume it's for the their stake. Yeah. Because process. I've is, seen their stake. I've From what I read, I clicked on a couple of those things that you linked to. One of them said, I think three to 4 billion. Yeah. Yeah, so they've they've got yeah thirty three percent stake in iFood. Admittedly, I know nothing about that subsidiary, but I mean that would seem to be an interesting asset, you know, in a market like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, look, the founder is great. What I don't really know is how you value these names, and that's where like I'm kind of, I don't know how you value many things these days, <laughs> but that's I think part of like is you know is it like a low like is are we talking sub single digit sales multiples like one to two times. And like, at what point, this is another one where like, at what point do the economics kind of start to stabilize, right? Like you're coming into the US market now with Grubhub. It's it's kind of a juggernaut there. You you have the resources to kind of keep it going. Are DoorDash and and, and Uber going to be chilling out? Like how is, I, like, you know, I can't see anyone throwing in the towel on, on food ordering after what's happened to the... Uh, with after the pandemic and this hybrid work environment, right? So I think that competition, I think competition is like still, I wouldn't say early days. I think we've settled more. You're not going to see more startups, but I haven't spent much time on the cloud kitchen dynamic. I have some friends who've gone into the cloud kitchen space and it's definitely an interesting space. And that was something that, that had a ton of hype before COVID. And, I, and I've heard that space has done really well under COVID. I mean, a lot of this goes to thinking about how this, how a business model works like this. If I'm in the restaurant business, okay, because I spent a ton of time on open, open table once upon a time. And if I'm in the restaurant business, and when you think about the marketplace model, right, if I start doing a ton of transactions through the marketplace, like I'm going to want to go to loyalty type of rewards and get you as a consumer. And we're thinking about this going back to retail and distribution margin, like with GoPro, I was thinking about this a lot too, is like, why does that not become DTC? Like that's Jamie's point. Like if living in Murray Hill in New York City, like I had the basket filled with, let's call the two dozen restaurants around me. Okay. If you were to think that like, you know, adding an Uber Eats or Seamless or whatever and be like, oh, I can order from someone on the Upper East Side now. I can get this from this. But like how frequently are you ordering from that like one place? Mm-hmm. Time, speed, convenience. You ended up typically probably ordering very regularly from four menus in your area. And those guys, by the way, in your area, that's a core part of their business in a New York City, right? And they're delivering to you. What, what ended up happening once you move this to digital is everybody starts getting taxed on the same transaction. Right. Because like they won't take cash, you know, like that becomes a thing. And then like, like literally because they won't take cash, they want you to pay to the marketplace. Like I once went through this there when I was ordering from... Uh, a pizza place I used to order regularly, Subway. I was like, can I just pay cash? Like, no. So I'm like, you understand that you're paying the margin to the delivery guy. Like, I could pay you cash. And they're like, yeah, but cash is a problem for us. And like, that's when you get into the point where it's like, what percentage of your business is coming from those people, like, you know, within two blocks who are ordering regularly from you? And now all of a sudden, you're just paying the aggregator. And that, like, this goes back to like a Substack debate. Like, if they're not top of fun, if they're not bringing you new customers, then they just become, you know, a middleman sitting and taking money from you, right? So 
that's when you look at these guys like Toast and these other ones who step in and say, like, if that's the case, you should just let it be known that, like, you're managing your own delivery and you have a customer base around you. And like, but at the, but the risk of that is that you disappear from there now. And I'm too lazy to pick up the phone. That's what Domino's does well, dude, with their app. The, the fact that they refuse to list themselves is actually proven to be a strength now, right? Because they got enough of the brand identity that nobody gets to take a cut out of, out of their business. And I mean, that's where you get into some of these other guys where it's like, if it's, if you're so big and, and if COVID really wreaked havoc on so many smaller restaurants, the, the dominance of a marketplace model would essentially be dependent on being able to tax, you know, like the Chipotle's of the world in theory, or the, you know, the Nando's or, or whatever in the UK. And at what point do those guys push back? And like, that's where you get into this. That's where you can start asking questions because that's when you go back from saying, well, look, Marketplace is working fine and dandy until all of a sudden I start looking at this and being like, I want to take margin out of here, right? And I'm, I'm thinking about changing my dynamic. And like right now, the way I see the just eat approach is they're looking at it and saying, we're going to use, we're going to run logistics at a loss or slightly whatever to fight off the competition. And we're in we're in a position to do that because we have a, a much more pro structurally profitable marketplace business and the moat that we've erected around that, right? And that's kind of where I look at it and say, well, I mean, you know, if I'm going to keep, if I'm going to have to have both apps, are you effectively speaking a more powerful marketplace? And, and like how long before, like, what's like, I mean, the other thing that, I mean, not in DoorDash's case, but at least in Uber's case, you know, Uber has a completely different business, you know, that can help support what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, Uber is so interesting because the delivery business was, like you said, you implied a huge success story for them this year, 2020, I mean. And now their main business, the historical mobility business, is the taxi business, is a reopening play. But neither is really, they, I think they said they're hoping to hit profitability by the end of the year, which means adjusted EBITDA profitability, I think. But yeah, I mean, you know, Uber is such a poster child, I think, arguably even more than Tesla of a lot of dynamics in the capital markets over the last decade. Yeah, I don't know. I, I it, you, you pose good questions about why should we assume that the competition is actually going to go anywhere? I think the old, the I don't know as much about where Toast focuses with all those case reading their S1. Like they just basically said, we're going to those big players and we're going to facilitate their delivery infrastructure. And that's from a marketplace perspective, you're right. That doesn't seem like that's a lot of gain for Just Eat or these other companies. Uber Eats just announced a partnership with Shake Shack, which is like a white label delivery, which can't be that great for them either. So there's not a lot of margin there. So there's potentially an implied bet in the medium to smaller size restaurant in any of these companies, any of these logistics or marketplace companies. And their aggregational role is somewhat controversial. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't have a great like response there, right? I think there's the the argument is actually for all the competitive pressures here is actually pretty simple. It's, I think that Just Eat's 
profit does give them something of a moat to be able to fight off the other companies. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. But you're right. Like the part of the story is that the CEO is very vocal and like attractive as a leader. It seems like one of those undersung Daniel X of the world. He's a winner. Everybody likes a winner. And, and like, he's sharp as a knife. I mean, he comes off that way. It's, there's no getting around that. So you, you want to back an operator. He's definitely, you know, I mean, people have figured that out, right? There's, there's no doubt about it. There's like, I do, I I do uh, like uh, wonder, like, why does it trade the way it does? Like, or or let's just say maybe like, I do think it deserves a bit more of a premium. So I kind of like what you're thinking about, but like I hadn't, I don't really have enough context. I, I, I didn't get the chance, you know, the last 48 hours to get into like Uber Eats and DoorDash, you know, like I saw your surface multiples, right? Right. And to sit and think about like why each one trades where they're trading. I mean, DoorDash just seems to have, you know, IPO dynamics and uh, like, you don't want to look at, I don't want to look at just eats and say, I want to buy this because this is what's going to happen here. They're going to spin this off, realize this value. And it's got a discount on this relative to something like DoorDash when DoorDash must just be stupid. Right. 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 I mean, long-term fine. Okay. I'm, I'm going to compound in, in, uh, owning this company for the next five years as he executes a vision. But there's other things you think about. Like, I mean, again, marketplace to me is just a bit weird dynamic when you're dealing with food ordering because it's local, right? Mm-hmm. So to take advantage of things in different in different regions, like you, know, like you have to be the best in every single city. Because, you're, yeah, you're, I mean, even I'm thinking, even if I were a loyal Just Eat customer and I went to another city, presumably I'm going to be going out to eat. Like, I'm not going to another city to deliver, to get food delivered to my hotel or whatever. So no, no, I, I'm not saying for you as a traveler, I'm just saying that there are, you know, success stories in different cities that work. Right. Right. So, like, they dominate, you know, in like, if you think about Europe, you know, they're dominating in like what, four markets? They're huge. Germany, Germany is like the even more Netherlands is their home. Takeaway.com was founded in the Netherlands with some Dutch name that I'm not going to try to say, but they, that's their historically their most profitable. I feel like they've started doing delivery there to be defensive. So they're eating away to EBITDA margins, but Germany, their EBITDA margin, their adjusted EBITDA went to like 5X last year from a very low base, but like that was the sign of, oh, okay, this is what we can ramp. So they have leadership there. I think they say they have leadership in Spain, but I'm not sure. But the UK is like the big battleground everybody's watching at, watching for. But yeah, Germany and Netherlands, I think, are the two like star examples of what the model should be able to do once they win their foothold. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a, I think part of this is a, distinction how we approach investments and we can get into this with GoPro in a second, but I think you are often zeroing in on what are catalysts that can drive this, what can make moves. And I'm sort of thinking, where can I feel relatively confident the left tail isn't going to be bad and where a couple of things might happen that open up the right tail. I'm thinking of the last name I pitched directly to you was F5 Networks and Elliot ended up coming in. Elliot oh, had a nice run. Yeah, it's it's you I know mean, whatever. I, like I sure everything's everything's done well, right? Yeah, but no, I mean like that was. I mean, there's some things that have gone right there. On, uh, they made another acquisition. Elliot's come in. Like it's 
So there's something where if you Dropbox is another one where again, like fundamentally, I'm not going to give you. I'm not going to give you credit there. <laughs> fundamentally, all they've done is said we're going to buy more shares. But yeah, like it's well, no, I mean, if you, I look at today, what's the one stock that's behind PagerDuty is Box. Wow. So I think that there's definitely on the, the, the low end of the SaaS multiples have started to come up. And as this, I mean, it's the same thing in, in many sectors, right? Like there's tweets today that yeah, I was reading that some about Viacom again, right? And the names that have been, you know, out of favor for so long. So finally, Aaron Levy gets to have some fun. I mean, after all the torture he's been going through, I can only imagine what, what it's been like to be a the SaaS CEO of the only SaaS but not only is it doubling or tripling or quadrupling, that's just not moving at all. <laughs> he keeps a sunny attitude on Twitter. So yeah, he he's he's been fantastic about it. Kudos to him, you know. But but yeah, like that's that seems to have been uh, ever since the the, the Doxend deal announcement. Yeah, you know, yeah. all you got to do is do a couple of deals. It's not hard. A <laughs> couple of deals, VC popular names, right? Docsend is yeah. huge among VCs. Pay a little so- premium to some some venture capitalists, and you know they'll, they'll put you put you on front and center. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's that's not literally what with Justy, but I I guess that's. I mean, I think there's all. I think the fundamental. It's no, I get your pitch. Like you want to own the space, and you're buying the best operator in the space, and you have a margin of safety. So like yeah, that's your that, that like does that sum it up? Yeah, I think so. I think it's just, it's an interesting story to follow because of the fundamental economics here are so like questionable in a, like what is going to, and that I don't usually, and I wrote that in my pitch, I I don't usually bother with those sorts of stories because they're hard. Car companies are hard to sort of think through with the advent of electric vehicles, but there's a lot to yeah, it, I mean, ultimately, that's you can probably reduce it to bet on the operator, bet on the jockey a little bit, but I don't know. So yeah, I think that's that's basically the pitch, and I think it'll be interesting. To, and you you've traded in the name past both directions, or do you, have you in the past taken? Are you? I don't think I've ever been long okay. any of the food ordering. I think I shorted Grubhub once or twice. Yelp, I shorted a bunch. I did flip Open Table once. But open table was also a short open table, which of course now belongs to the booking empire. All right, why don't we go to if you've if you still got the energy for what? What's the you want to talk GoPro? Yeah, we can go quick. What do you want to know? Give us the you put out a two pager on Twitter, but give us the yeah. basic story here, and then I've got some questions for you about the motivated into this uh, after listening to a lot of the GameStop people had been kind of keeping a little bit of an eye on it. And once I started listening to the uh, GameStop folks talking about the GameStop turnaround, I was aware of the subscriber growth at GoPro and I started to do a little bit more work on it. And what was I looking for? What has been the dominant theme of what I've been focused on for the last month? Death of COVID trades. And here I am about to travel and going to buy a GoPro. So putting it all together, I got kind of you know, in the weeds very quickly. And I freaking loved it. <laughs> what stood so, out for you when you started to dig in? What, what did you just like that? That it's transforming and it makes sense. Right. So when you think about their business pre COVID full disclosure had shorted GoPro in the past, I'd also focused on Amberella. Uh, I'd reached out at one time to the, the GoPro's competitor contour 
CEO that right after he got bankrupt, he wrote a whole thing about how the Michael Jordan approach to marketing is what beat him, not a better not, not a better product. And that GoPro had this virtuous cycle and developed a brand that was just impossible to compete with. I never bought into like GoPro would be a content play, you know, and like that failed quickly. And uh, they also stumbled in, in drones, even though a lot of people like their drone. But I guess they just decided to. But like it's a company that essentially has cut like almost three quarters of their operating expenses out in the last couple of years. They had a subscriber base, which would make sense when you consider the extreme sports type brand. People who are doing extreme sports and essentially want what is tantamount to discounts on accessories that they may work like, you know, use through and uh, insurance, essentially speaking on your camera, right? Like to get it replaced and thrown in some storage and, and whatnot. And like the app has editing features that are automated that have become very popular with like five, six million or whatever monthly users. And there's no doubt it has a brand. It built it over time. The fact that they couldn't turn it into a content play, forget that. But on the flip side, there is, you know, iPhone and Samsung progressively shipping away at, at, at reasons to use an action camera. I mean, the action camera sits there between your, you know, your high-end SLR and your phone. So this goes back to like, you know, when you were talking about what we were just saying earlier, whether or not it needs to exist. But what I saw in the business under COVID, well, I, I had not really understood what they were doing. I understood the subscription the way it stood before. But when I saw how many subs they added last quarter, Q4, I was like, how the hell, like, how is that happening? So looking at the bundle, the bundle and the deal, and I, I, full disclosure, I bought a, a new Hero 9 subscriber and it's you save $100 essentially buying it directly from them and you get an extra battery and you get the micro SD card. Not the biggest deal, but when you add in the accessories, that you get 50% off and the fact that you can get two replacement cameras and that they're now throwing in the new app and I played with the new app for an hour is great. It's a good value proposition. It's a great deal. I can't see who doesn't take it, right? So I started looking at it from that standpoint and I married that to the refresh. And then I kind of started drilling into the financial transformation. So look at this company as a company that in the last six months did 200 million in operating cash flow. They're guiding you to like, let's call it about 160 million in free cash flow this year. I think in a blue sky scenario, they could come close to double that. Now, I'm not, I wouldn't say build your base case there, but if you believe that they can do more units in 2021 than they did in 2019, which is the type of like really, really bullish open up scenario type of you know thinking, that, that's what you end up with. So if you look at the business, it was like probably call it single digit DTC that shifted to what do you want to call it? Uh, it's over 30. Like it's 34% and they're guiding you to 40. So let's say a little over 40 this year. That's like, what's interesting about it is like in the day and age of the, you know, really good smartphone camera, the type of person using an action cam, whether you're biking or snowboarding or skiing or skydiving or just family vacation or outdoors, snorkeling, et cetera, if you're going to do these things and you have an action camera for it, there's no reason if you're the dominant brand in the space to be not going direct to consumer in this day and age. Like pandemic, great reason to accelerate that for you. But like the fact that you were still splitting a notable portion of that margin with the retailers made no sense. Because what are like, what exactly are they bringing you business-wise? Kind of foot traffic, like someone just randomly walks in. You're going to go seek out an action cam and you're going to buy a GoPro. 
Like the brand is that strong. So like to me, the fact that they decided in uh, Q4 to bundle the subscription with, you know, $50 a year with the hardware, it was genius. <laughs> okay. Because yeah, if you're thinking that you're going to have a major refresh, particularly in a year where like your units were down almost 50% from the previous year because of COVID, but you're going to have a major refresh on top of the rebound and the transformation in, in your kind of financial model. Why not take it to the next level? And that's exactly what they've done. They've essentially accelerated and given you the incentive to turn everybody into a subscriber who wants to buy a camera for the year after the pandemic because they're counting on having a lot of activities and family functions or travel and outdoor type events. And I can tell you, like, just in the two weeks that I've kind of really been bullish on it, I've had three people tell me that they just recently bought GoPro cameras. So not exactly like that's a sample size. It's about as bad as Goldman Sachs' survey of 11 analysts or whatever it was, 12 analysts, which <laughs> has stirred up such a, such a riot. But if you want to look at the guidance that they gave you, they gave you 2 million subs by year end. Like I could see them blowing through that. So in their scenario, and they're not including the app, the new app, they're not including anything related to that. They're not including any potential, you know, gangbuster year from the end of COVID and the vaccine. They walked you through a model and in their model, they're like, we'll exit the year with roughly 500 million in cash and call it, you know, 160, 170 million in free cash flow. So at like the, at the, let's call it 1 billion or so, 1.1 billion or whatever enterprise value that I paid initially, you could look at that as potentially year end, an entry at like maybe let's call it 800 million EV. And you could say, well, all right, they'll do 200 million. That's four, four times EBITDA. Now the question becomes with this company, what's 2022 look like and what's churn going to be? But you're not going to really get to see that. And remember, like as someone who's in Dropbox, right? There's the annual structure of a subscription model. What percent are going to cancel? I've talked to analysts who think it, it like that it'll be 10, 15%. I'm of the opinion, you know, maybe with something like this, for some people, it may be really high. It could be like 50%, but who knows? But the bottom line with that is you're going to have zero visibility into how that works till February of next year. In between now and then, they potentially are knocking the cover off the ball on subscribers. And that's where you get into this kind of like the real GameStop trade. The business model makes sense. The transformation makes sense. They've given you KPIs to measure. Like it's being executed upon and it's got a secular tailwind, not a headwind. So like you marry that all together and like, you know, you want to rent a trade. It's a fantastic trade. What's, what's your downside scenario that you're six months from now owning a stock that does at three times EBITDA that like the founder could have easily sold the company. And I'm sure they've had offers over the time, but now has executed a financial model that Wall Street's going to love and get behind. And everyone's going to basically be like, you know, death of COVID. It's, it's, it's like I was joking. It's like the Zoom of 2021. 2020 was at home video conferencing. 2021 is the action camera. The year of go, go pro or go home. <laughs> it's a very pithy I didn't call it that though. What's his name on O'Hare? O'Hare on Twitter did GoPro or go home. It's that's very pithy. but I did coin do or do not. There is no try. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think Yoda gets the credit for that, but no, no, I get the credit for that one. 
<laughs> so starting fundamentally with this subscription, what are the economics around that? Because what you're t- there's there's sort of two. I mean, it's basically fifty percent operating margin, right? For even each- though they're giving up a discount, there they're still. Well, what you have to look at is the blend. The subscription is fifty percent operating margin to them, but like if you want to look at the maybe coming out of what they would classify as hardware margin, right, and calling it subscription margin. But basically, if you look at the aggregate financial model, they're adding something like let's call it twenty-five million per per million subs in free cash flow, and they've improved their gross margins slightly on the camera. So you got to think about it more from the cash generation standpoint. And that's like, you know, I think where there's a lot of appeal in the model. Well, because I mean, again, like, you, like if you think about this company at, at, at the end of the year at, at, you know, 600 million, why wouldn't you want to own it here? It's interesting to say I invested in a similar play and they, that play breaks out the hardware from the services. I, they use a different word for hardware, but the units like the revenue and the gross, the cost of goods sold from whatever the services, revenues and costs of services sold. And so that's embedded here. If I understood it correctly, like they, when they talk about ASP, they're including the subscription revenue. And so, and I'm reading now their. Yeah, because they're offering it to you as, as a rebate on what was previously, if you're buying a camera that has an MSRP of like 449 for 349, with the subscription added, okay, and that takes up the overall ASP per camera. That's still the same thing, right? They've just they've just converted part of the business into a recurring model where they're expecting a certain degree of churn. Do they? We talk so much about in streaming about how these companies now have to take on all the costs that the legacy players, in that case Netflix, have already built into their model. Does that factor in here? Does GoPro have to, whether it's developing the subscription? Well, I mean, you think about things that GoPro has done. What, what is there to develop in the subscription? The subscription is giving you discount and it's giving you insurance and it's giving you an app they were already giving. So it's a loyalty program. It allows them to remarket directly. It gives them direct consumer access, okay, which they should have had with the brand that they have. What you've taken away is margin that you were splitting with the retailer, which makes perfect sense for the nature of your business. But you're not like built, it's not like you're building something new from an R&D standpoint, right? They had already cut out Amberella with their own chip. That was a notable thing that they did a few years ago. Like what they've been doing cost-wise in the business is 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 not like rocket science. It's It's pretty well known. So I don't think you have to really dissect it that much. Yeah, the insurance aspect is interesting too because it's that's uh, if you build the cameras well enough and people don't go too nuts in their extreme sporting or whatever. Exactly, you know, it's, it's not a cost to you. But like, they already had subscribers who were willing to pay for that, and they're willing to pay for that for the accessories, the extra batteries, the straps, the harnesses, all the other stuff you know that people get when the the sticks. It's it's not a shocker. So I think this is a great move because if you you have an enthusiast brand and you're acknowledging that we're not mass market with the app, particularly opening it up to your camera roll as well, like it's a smart move. Again, 
Like, I mean, I spent $30 on an editing app for tennis, right? So if I'm going to get that, you know, with, with GoPro, fantastic, <laughs> you know? So I think that everything that they've done is just super smart. What's your sense? Because the app specifically, I mean, I remember. It's simple. You can import the music. I mean, uh, you know, it's automated. It's, I mean, I'm, I've gotten to the point where I'm sophisticated using it, but like as far as editing apps, so I can handle a, like a high-end customized editing app, but I don't think that there's anything out there that's been that, that easy as their app. And the private wall and the ability to share, I think is smart. Like, you know, Woodman, I, I, I listened to him talk about it. Like he does make sense with his narrative around, you know what, like you've just got all, all this like trash on your phone. And like you take a picture, you know, like the, the dispo argument too, right? Where the can't, the picture doesn't develop till the next day. There is something around that here where like you're taking a lot of pictures and you may look at them and do what you do with them, but like you're actually not taking pictures. You're actually not like, you know, you're, you're not getting much usage out of it. Because they just sit on the camera roll and you never bother with them. Exactly. So. So. So one other thing that came up and I saw there was an article, Alex Pitty wrote an article arguing that extreme sports actually did well last year. And obviously GoPros, like the camera dynamics were awkward because stores were shut down and retail was a big sell through for a lot of these companies. And so that affected a lot. But extreme sports, RVs, obviously we've mentioned other outdoor things were big last year. And so maybe what do you make of that sense that maybe at least some of COVID was a positive because people were going outside and that's like one of the only, I mean, I think the summer it was, yes. Uh, I don't think that there was enough traveling and I think that there was, I mean, we can agree there was a huge percentage of the population that was not willing to, but we're still at a huge percentage of the population that is still has not embraced opening up yet. So yeah. For some people, you know, they traveled around domestically, they did camping and they did, I played a lot of tennis, right? I mean, there's things you could do, but I don't think, you know, skydiving, snorkeling, action, adventure type stuff. And like doing like major outings where you're capturing it right on camera. Travel tourism. I think that was like, I think that's a key part, but that, yeah, I mean, look, if that's a fair point. There are fair points to think about with this thing, which is, you know, what does 22, like going back to what you were saying earlier, we'll be talking about the end of COVID trade and the way where we're talking about the end of work from home trade. That's going to happen. I think there's a point in 2022 where there's no work from home excitement and there's no death of COVID excitement. And it's just like, you're, you're like in that no man's land of who's holding up better than everybody else. Like, you know, pager duties and work days who maybe didn't have a great, like, you know, they're somewhere in between. They benefited from COVID, but they're not co- like they're not pure work from home junkies, and and like hy- the hybrid environment works well for them. Like, yeah, I think that's like the type of thing you want to think of, or like you know, home builders who like there's still like a secular tailwind behind their business. Like, there's a bunch of things that like you got to think what sits in between. But like the guys who are piling into cruise lines and airlines and whatever, as good as things go, like we're gonna hit a point where that the excitement of the end of COVID wears off and you start focusing on other things. Well, that's, that's, I think the most interesting because the thesis here is you've laid it out pretty clearly and it makes sense. And I think even the, I mean, the numbers show and the guidance shows and what, you know, it's up to GoPro to deliver, but 
Yeah, it's not an ice cream cone that, you know, the, a, a pets guy tweeted for digital video gaming uh, for, for uh, a disc business, right? But, but that's and, everyone's, a- and, and everyone's like, well, but he crushed it there, right? So we'll just wait and see. And by the way, I'll pay whatever price for that and it's a movement, right? Like this is a legit thesis. Like you don't have to sit there and be like, oh, it's an insane what you're paying. Like, you know, who's pays who in this market, how many stocks are trading at single digit, low single digit, potential EBITDA multiples, you know, on, on the forward with every metric going up and to the right. I'm not telling you just to go start valuing and get like a SaaS stock because they have subscription revenue that is essentially a, a loyalty program. The, let's be objective. But I am telling you that like they could do 3 million subscriber ads in the year and that there will be a lot of people who will tell you to view it that way. And that there's nobody on, on, on this green earth that's going to want to short this stock till it's $20. And even then it becomes like, okay, why are you bothering with this? Find something, find a different point. I mean, I bet we've been there in these things like, you know, Crocs and and, and names like that, where you got to wait down the road to see, you know, how it plays out. But in the interim, the story is unassailable. And it's, it's interesting because you had cited this cash flow. There were a lot of favorable working capital dynamics, I think, but you're right. I mean, I, 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 for some reason, I missed the management commentary until we were talking, but they're guiding to have cash grow, like you said, sort of in the 150 to 180 range or something. And so that those are promising numbers on a company that's still only an EV of around less than $2 billion, I think, if I am doing the quick numbers in my head. So it's, but I guess what's interesting to me is you, you've, you talked about how GameStonk was sort of your, you were thinking about that as you were entering this and you've joked about- I was thinking about that when I was listening to a bunch of people who are in in it talking about the fundamentals of the business. Of GameStop we're talking about. And I just could not, I could not believe what I was hearing because I was like, like there's nothing in the fundamentals of the business that remotely correlates to what these people are saying. And it, it all ultimately turned into there's this, there's a person who's invested in this who succeeded in e-commerce very well. And he, just wait and see. He has a plan, which is fine. That's that's a thesis. But like I think you have a real thesis here, which is this business is transformed itself. They've taken this much cost out. There's the tailwind of the end of COVID. And structurally, what they've done makes sense. And it's sustainable. Like you, The, the brand is well positioned. If you look at how they've done in social media over the last year, that's like everything for them looks good. I, I can't see anything to criticize them on yet. Wait till the end of the year and see. And like the app coming out, like I'm not like you know. I also talked about NFTs. Like I thought that was very potentially interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's and I was going to say that. It's just I guess what I'm trying to get at is like why can't they do collectibles like Top Shot, right? Like just trading cards around extreme sports athletes. It's sometimes you buy a, you buy a GoPro, you get like you know your uh, discounts on on the card drops. There's a lot of things that they can do. But it's it feels like there's a little bit of pegging against some of the fluffier parts of the market is I guess what I'm saying. Like by mentioning NFT, not to I don't mean to speak ill of newborn four by Grimes, but yeah. the, the NFT market, the GameStop market, we're talking about let's charitably call them the more speculative parts of our current financial ecosystem. Okay, yeah, no, I get that completely. But I'm saying the point is that when you look at what they're hanging the, their hats on. Top Shot is doing fantastic. And when you think about what in the past has failed for them as far as uh, media content, 
this actually makes ridiculously good sense because they traffic essentially as a brand in like extreme rare events. You jump out of space, essentially speaking with a GoPro camera. If you want to provide trading cards around the people you've associated with brand wise on the extreme end, that's a collectibles market. Like it's a no brainer. So I'm not going to sit here and say that that's going to happen, but like, well, then you see what's happening and what people are interested in. That's great. And more importantly, like they could use it more than LeBron James and the NBA. So like as far as something to connect with their fans. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I get your point. Like that's, uh, but like whether it's Viacom or Discovery or Volkswagen or GameStop or whatever, but like this thing actually has KPIs and things you can track and say, well, you know, they're executing on a plan and it makes sense. Again, it goes back to that whole point of tell me what GameStop was going to do, streaming, this, that, that, like we've had this conversation. When I look at this, I'm like, it makes no sense to not be DTC. They've developed a brand in this exact market and like it's it's exactly what they should be doing. So maybe the last thing is you you mentioned this, the... I mean, the thesis is fairly, you sort of have a target fairly short term. And I guess that's what's also interesting is you're, you've, it sounds to me like what you're saying about churn is that's unknowable. And for now, let's not even think about it. Let's assume that people realize that there's going to be X amount of cash generated this year and that it's going to be a promising 2021. And then, you know, long term, we'll see what happens. But the market should, in the meantime, be bold up enough to make this an interesting position for the next few months. Is that the right way to think about how you're time-wise looking at this? I mean, the the argument around the churn being significantly lower than I potentially think it could end up being makes sense. What I'm saying is that it's very hard to have visibility on that now because it is something new and it's something that is going to go beyond, let's say, an enthusiast. So when you think about marrying them to a broader market set, like mass market kind of reactivation and doing unit sales potentially, which they haven't guided to, but doing unit sales potentially higher than they were doing pre-COVID in one year because of the end of COVID dynamics, you obviously have to look at that cohort and say, I can't think of them staying loyal in the same way their existing cohort would be loyal on subscription because they're the type of people who are going to be using this for limited events, limited travel, limited, let's call it limited action moments in life that, you know, come on the back of the end of a pandemic. They're not the type of people who like pre COVID, you know, were willing to pay a subscription for the discounts and the accessories and everything else. So there's a, a huge percentage of them where it's just like they're going to forget to cancel and you're going to get nice cash flow out of that. Okay. But the ones that are going to be very attuned to that are going to want to cancel it. Like I, that's, that's the way I look at that from, from that standpoint, but that's, that's irrelevant because at the end of the day, they've transformed the model in the direction they should, they should be connecting with the consumer. They can target and market to them. They can find new ways to engage those customers who potentially we are today saying, are not going to be the type we would expect to hang around. So like, and I've learned my lessons in in those possibilities. So when I look at it, I just say, do you have a a high margin of safety where you got in? Do you like what they're executing on? Is it believable? And do I have the tailwinds that are behind it? And should the stock work? 
and all those check the boxes. The craziness, like, yeah, I mean, like, that's something we can discuss if the stock is over $20, let alone game stocks and, and NFTs. If an NFT is going to sell for $60 million or if they do like, you know, what's his name? Felix, uh, who is the guy who jumped out of the Felix, Felix Baumgartner. That sounds Baumgartner sounds right. Yeah. But if they do stuff like that and like you start seeing these extreme guys do do things, yeah, that's a whole different ballgame. But like that's not like, you know, that's not what I'm banking on. But like when I talk about these things, it makes sense. Like you see these things are happening, you start to consider them. And of course, people are going to wrap the catalysts around them. But like when you're paying two to three times EBITDA on a death of COVID scenario of like a boom in a year, like you don't have to. Like that's where that's why you that's why you get excited about these things. Like they're irrelevant to your thesis. Yeah, it, it's it. What do you? It's, GoPro was able to pull this off because of the because a lot of people when they when you've pitched this a lot, Fitbit has come up a lot, right? As sort of a hardware, they've got some data. Google ended up buying them. Is what makes it that GoPro was able to pull this off? Is it the the fact that they? had that brand identity or is it actually the quality of their hardware? Because you mentioned the distinction between them and Contour. Like, why do you think GoPro is set up to... I, don't, I mean, they're, they're, they were without a shadow of a doubt a brilliant marketing organization. Which we poo-poo a lot, but which matters. Be able to... Yeah. Yeah. All right. I don't I don't have any other... I think that's it. We'll go ahead questions. and call the shot clock there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Buzzer beaters have already gone down. Who knows what's happening? We've got a. I won't try any more March Madness puns, but yeah, interesting stuff. I think two different theses in terms of their approach, but share some commonalities in terms of founder CEO being involved, and both were like mid mid teens IPOs in the sense of Grubhub and GoPro. Yeah, I mean GoPro went to what seventy eighty bucks, and then just total collapse. Yeah, it, that that hardware to soft hardware to subscription switch is really, you know, it's really popular and really. I think about what we talk about with subscription creep and all those sorts of things. But this is a pretty unique. If you're signing up for this, you're doing it because of a specific, like you're not gonna switch as much as you would with a Viacom or a peacock or whatever like it, it, it's less replaceable if that's what you're into all right good stuff good stuff all right, dude. have a good weekend yeah you too best of luck with this one thank you for listening to the razor's edge subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts hit us up on twitter at at daniel shortman and at akram's razor with suggestions requests or anything else we aim to publish this every tuesday morning and love to hear from you If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Short Man Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening, and see you next week.